0: a very spooky haunted hello to you all it's a special halloween episode of conservation realist i realize it will be past halloween by the time most of you listen to this but hey let's keep the celebrations going along with the heavily discounted candy some of you might be enjoying So, though it would be super fun to feature stories of eerie happenings in the field or otherworldly spiritual or mythical creatures from around the world, I'm really going to focus today on the sort of uncomfortable shadows in conservation. The hard truths and complicated questions that lurk around us, but that we, unlike imprudent horror film characters, often don't care to investigate. And then I'll have some more entertaining snippets at the end. So what's motivating this episode? Well, I've been learning more and more about my Irish heritage, including from some cousins over there who are very attuned to the spiritual traditions of Ireland. That's how I've learned that Halloween actually originated in Ireland as the Celtic festival of Samhain. It's spelled Samhain, but it's pronounced Samhain. It's a celebration and observance of the darker time of year, a time where the veil between this world and the other world is lifted, and spirits, including ancestors, can move between the realms more easily. This might remind you a bit of Dia de los Muertos, this kind of embracing of death and connecting with ancestors. And for me, the first time I was really exposed to this notion, um, of this time of year as a time of connection was in 2011 when i was in manila um, on a break uh, from field work uh, in the philippines uh, during halloween and all saints day i visited a cemetery as families gathered to pay respects to their departed loved ones and it was beautiful it was festive with stalls selling food and light up gadgets and candles Yet it was also respectful and profound. And so I've increasingly grown captivated with this idea of of death, darkness, and the afterlife or otherworld or underworld, not as something to try to avoid or hide from, but something to accept and even embrace as part of our experience in this universe. So I thought it would be fitting to make this little episode to share space with some of the dark or uncomfortable questions and issues in conservation. So let's get cozy, light some metaphorical candles, or even a bonfire as we open our minds to some of the truths that we might perhaps shy away from otherwise. Because these shadowy truths and questions will never be addressed until we learn to get comfortable facing them and engaging with them. So the first question to ponder, how much are you actually willing to change in your own life to, and I quote-unquote, save the world? And how does this compare to the adjustments you expect other people to make? When you envision a quote-unquote conservation solution that requires alteration or adaptation in how communities live Are those things that you yourself would actually be okay doing? If someone knocked on your door tomorrow and said, so you're going to need to stop taking flights for fieldwork, for conferences, for workshops, because it contributes to climate change, how would you react? As a note, I fully appreciate the value of in-person interactions. It's not the same on Zoom, Uh, But a lot more can be done on Zoom or remotely than I think we've been willing to admit. I also admit that I'm not willing to stop flying um, for professional or personal reasons. And I won't give some kind of wobbly excuse like uh, I've heard many people do. (laughs) Like the things I do when I travel help save the world through research and sharing ideas. I I don't have such a grandiose view of myself. I don't think anyone should. Um, and I have to accept that this is me being selfish, and I think a lot more of us need to be comfortable with truths like that um, going on. For those of us in the Global North, what would you change to reduce your disproportionate impact on the planet? What privileges would you relinquish? Like, really, what would you actually do? And what's stopping you from doing it? On a related note, what would those of us in a position of relative privilege really do to make conservation truly more inclusive? Beyond stated commitments to quote-unquote diversity and increasing travel grants to a somewhat less but still wholly inadequate level, beyond, well, we looked into decreasing the cost of this conference for Global South participants, but it's just hard, so we're going to give up. What would you actually do? And peer-reviewed publishing. Oh my goodness, for me, is this ever an old ghost roaming the hallways way past its time. Why are so many in this field pressured to spend an inordinate amount of time and energy to write something in awkward academic English, and generally English only, that is not necessarily widely accessible? due to cost or language or both and not necessarily read by all that many people. And why is there so much pressure to feed into this publishing machine when it's not necessarily a particularly efficient way to get information from research into action? Part of that of course is the intense competition for inadequate resources for research and conservation work. Publications help get grants and fellowships they lend an air of authority, and I understand the value of that. Grants and fellowships in turn beget more grants and fellowships. But there aren't enough to fund every truly deserving project out there. Though, of course, large NGOs often spend a lot on overhead and events in the nicest hotels in town, I understand that these organizations need to uphold a reputation of prestige to impress government and private sector partners, but still, we have to shine light on this shadow. So the people doing the best work in conservation often have to significantly reduce the time and energy devoted to the real work and instead scour for funding, as well as funding for workshops and conferences, as well as time, and sometimes, if the publication fee waiver isn't granted, money for publishing. And competition and the pursuit of prestige and recognition can give rise to the worst in us. I think many of us know at least a few conservation quote-unquote heroes who are internationally recognized yet who aren't particularly effective conservationists and who might, also, not be particularly good or nice people. They're good at self-promotion and schmoozing. And once someone becomes recognized, they attract more and more funding and recognition, but really it needs to be shared more widely. There aren't a relatively small number of exceptional saviors of nature. There are hundreds, thousands, and they deserve support. And what kind of person is usually recognized as a conservation hero? Generally, some sort of nerd. Sorry. (laughs) Some sort of researcher. I'm one too, right? Don't get me wrong. Many researchers do excellent and meaningful work in the field. But many other kinds of people do as well. Why don't we provide better platforms for managers, rangers, and community members who often are the ones doing the real work and the ones who will have to continue this work long after research projects are done? Where's their recognition? And does being an expert in the natural sciences make you an expert in conservation? Then why are most of the people recognized as conservation experts, primarily natural science researchers? Remember, conservation is about way more than the natural science itself. And who has a right to decide what happens with a species or an area or a resource? Really, who has the right and why? And when there are competing interests, how do we decide which interest prevails and who gets to decide that? Now ask yourself, if you were trying to save a species desperately, and someone in the government of the relevant jurisdiction grew passionate about it, enough to strictly enforce protections, but in a way that violated human rights, what would you do? If that administration in general were known for its corruption and human rights violations, would you partner with them? Where would you draw the line in how much you cater to them in order to get your work done? And how can we ever really get a handle on what we're doing in conservation if proper monitoring and evaluation are rarely conducted? And my final spooky question of the episode, and of course there are many more out there, is this. Do you dare to face all of these shadowy questions? And do you dare to trust and honor your own intelligence, training, experience, and motivations, but balance them with humility and curiosity and determination to change the things that are difficult? And do you dare to try to make the conservation world a bit brighter for it? This notion of sitting with the darkness is actually very much aligned with the spirit in which I conceived of conservation realist. These dark, so-called scary things don't seem so terrifying when we acknowledge and even welcome them. And I know this from a different area of my life when I've been trying to get less and less afraid to look at my bank account and credit card statements, Um, but that's for a different time. (laughs) We do ourselves and our work a disservice by a forced, sunny outlook and by labeling anything that isn't optimistic as doom and gloom. So I don't want you to leave this episode feeling immensely depressed, rather I hope to challenge you to renew your determination to do work that really matters and to work toward bettering the field in general, even if it's only in relatively small, specific ways. So I promised some more fun little snippets of spirit tales and experiences. And these are just a subset of things that I've experienced and learned about. Having worked in Southeast Asia, where there are many rich traditions of spirituality and animism, there is a lot more to share than I could do justice here. These are just some little things that I've brushed up against. So the first, while I was studying Irrawaddy dolphins in the Mahakam River as a very appreciative collaborator to the wonderful Dr. Danielle Kreb of Yaya San Conservasi Rasi in Indonesia, my team and I lived on a floating house that was tethered to the riverbanks of a small village. It was right next to a dolphin highway with dolphins passing by regularly, including at night when we couldn't see them in the dark but could only hear their blows. Well, it turns out that that's not the only thing I wasn't able to see out there. Apparently, there was a ghost or spirit of an old man who would regularly fish from the the deck or, or patio kind of dock area of the house. The locals around me would casually mention to each other, like, oh yeah, I saw the old man out there last night, and me too, while I, who had also been out there during the night, hadn't seen anything. It made me feel very left out, very unattuned but also was kind of my first close interaction with people who who experienced something in a realm that I kind of would never have considered reality before, or would never have imagined this to be brought up in kind of everyday conversation. Over in the Philippines, on the mango-yielding island of Guimaras, I apparently had a run-in with spirits, but I wish I hadn't in that case. So we were doing interviews in a village when I suddenly had a sharp stomach pain, really sharp stomach pangs, Um, perhaps too much three-in-one coffee, which was a staple served to us in many households that we visited. I barely made it through the trike ride back to our apartment, where I ran into the bathroom and immediately vomited, and I was just miserable. And my sister, who was on my field team as well, soon got sick herself. And later that day, I was able to get myself out of bed long enough to slowly walk to the market to pick up some ginger and other basic goods for the two of us. And then I heard my field assistant, Aisa, yelling my name. And I turned to see her running after me, shouting, Mom Tara, you need ginger. And I was like, Yeah, yeah, thanks. I have some here. It's good for the stomach, right? I'm going to make some tea. And she said, No, 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 not like that. I'll take them to my teacher. I'm also an apprentice in witchcraft, and they will bless the ginger to keep you safe from spirits. And my reaction was, what? And she continues, where is your shirt? I need your shirt. The, the one I'm wearing now? Um, no, 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 the one from when you got sick. Okay, so I went back to the apartment to get my shirt from earlier, and Aisa took it so that her her teacher could do whatever necessary to it and the special ginger. She brought it back um, to me with strict instructions to sleep with it under my pillow, so the ginger was wrapped in the shirt. And then we had to carry blessed pieces of ginger in our pockets from then on. So apparently the barangay or, or village where I'd started feeling sick was known for having spirits that entered the bodies of outsiders, and Era and I were the most outside of the outsiders. At any rate, I did feel better the next day and, and didn't get sick again that trip. Um, and though the role of the blessed ginger in that turnaround is unclear, I appreciated learning something new. Um, and some months later, I found a dried up nubbin of ginger in one of my field pants pockets that it somehow survived various rounds of washing. And this one's more personal. I was in Myanmar, having just returned after my father's death in San Diego, and I was just wrecked by grief, and also sort of numb in the face of feelings that were so much more expansive than I'd ever imagined my emotional universe could be. I was reeling from the realization of how very difficult this grief would be across the world for my family um but i managed somehow to go to the local supermarket in those early days and that was one of the first outings i could really manage i was walking by the furniture aisle of the ocean Supercenter, which had all sorts of smallish foldable pra- plastic sorry plastic furniture including little knee-high tables Um, that often featured super-saturated, even gaudy landscapes. And one such table immediately caught my eye. Its landscape was a view that I knew very, very well. Over the aloe flowers on the cliffs of Scripps Institution of Oceanography, out to the ocean and to La Jolla Cove in the distance, right near where my postdoc office used to be. I'd never seen anything like it, nothing from San Diego area, in the store before and never saw it again. It really felt like a message or kindness somehow. Um, My family jokes, because I do tend to be a little more on the skeptical side of these kinds of things, um, that my dad would have to do something really silly and over the top to get my attention, and this certainly fits the bill. It really, really helped give me the courage to stay on. And uh, in the next year or so, I managed to achieve some of my most meaningful conservation work ever. And I like that that also speaks to how, how we as conservationists, I know I give us as a sector a bit of a hard time with my, my challenges and my, as I like to call it, realism. But of course we have to recognize that we too are humans and and we need support as well whatever realm that support might come from i was really um entertaining the thought of sharing a bit about spirituality and its role in conservation but candidly my experience with this is fairly limited and i don't currently have the time to learn enough to do it justice and maybe you think that this spiritual stuff is sort of woo -woo, like irrelevant unserious not worthy of consideration. But I think it's actually quite instructive to at least entertain the notion, even if only as a thought exercise, that there are spiritual forces that we don't fully understand or might not even notice. It's a good exercise in humility, in holding spaces for ways of thinking and working and being that you might not be directly familiar with yourself, but that are valid and important to other people nonetheless. I especially encourage natural scientists to engage in this kind of exercise, especially if you don't necessarily have a a sort of tradition of of spirituality or, 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 excuse me, speaking is challenging, or a religion in your life. Um, Because for some natural science folks, social science and qualitative data are also seen as sort of out there abstractions, when in reality they are actually incredibly And demonstrably important. So my family is going to observe tonight with a small bonfire and by lighting candles at an altar for my dad and our ancestors, and I encourage all of us to keep exploring the dark shadows of things we might initially avoid, the uncomfortable questions and awkward truths, because there is a real strength to be gained from doing so. So, enjoy the darkness, my friends, and we'll meet again over some conversations, three more for this season to be exact, starting next week. <laughs>
1: To Say till the don so't tell life i pay my love to God when I money but what't you love all boy Ba waet chai Nite tru xa lo te sao ga li the the he lu dai ma co tao chi be lo no, ba se do neo cha ve lai ban ne me oh. like, nga xa lo do du. กไก May that time. The you. 优优独播剧场